It's time for the 7th Avenue Project, online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello, folks. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And to open the show this week, a famous moment from public radio that happened a little over a month ago. I think I was terrified that if I untied these things, that the work that I know is really good and tells a story that does these really great things for making people care, that it would come apart in a way where where it would ruin everything. That was the performer Mike Daisy coming clean, sort of, on This American Life. He admitted to having invented parts of a story that he'd told on a previous episode of This American Life. And you can hear him there explaining to host Ira Glass why he didn't warn the program in advance that he'd made up some details of his story. It's because he was worried that without those great dramatic touches the whole performance would just lose its punch, that it would fall flat. Well, that got me uh, thinking a lot about the relationship between truth and storytelling and whether those two things are really compatible much of the time. And if, in fact, they are at odds, which one we, the public, would really prefer? The mere facts of the matter or a well-told tale? And I also wanted to know about this thing called fact-checking in journalism and publishing, which in theory is supposed to prevent falsehoods from getting into so-called news and nonfiction, but which often fails to do so, as in the case of This American Life. I'll be talking a little later in the show with an actual former fact-checker named Jim Fingal. He's the co-author of a recent book called Lifespan of a Fact, and it treats these very questions. Fiction versus nonfiction, literal truth versus artistic expression, and fact checkers versus creative writers. But first, a conversation with Craig Silverman. He is a journalist and a kind of media watchdog who monitors accuracy in news. He writes the blog Regret the Error, which describes itself as tracking accuracy, errors, and the craft of verification. Craig, let me just explain to you why I sought you out. I was actually doing an interview with the comedian John Hodgman. You know who he is? Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. And I expected a jokey kind of conversation, tongue-in-cheek and, and not a lot of seriousness. But at some point I asked him about the um, recent imbroglio with Mike Daisy and uh, Ira Glass of This American Life. Our listeners probably know the whole story, but but there was an episode of This American Life in which they aired a chunk of Mike Daisy's one-man performance about his trip to Shenzhen in China and his investigation of the massive Foxconn industrial complex there that uh, manufactures, among other things, a lot of Apple products, and um, the the terrible working conditions he, quote-unquote, found. Uh, They aired that in January, and then um, just this past month, they issued a retraction devoted a whole show to retracting the story because it turns out Mike Daisy had fibbed about a lot of the details of his trip to China. Uh, So I asked John Hodgman 
about that. It turns out he's a friend of both Mike Daisy and Ira Glass. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so he had some very serious thoughts about it. That the whole what I thought was going to be a sort of comedic interview turned into a very serious talk about truth and art and artistic license. Mm-hmm. Now you have weighed in on this too in your blog. You have written um, quite a bit about the Mike Daisy affair. And you are also kind of an expert, I guess, on uh, on fact checking. Yes, I uh, I wrote about the history of fact checking at American magazines uh, in my book, and uh, have attended a lot of conferences and emailed a lot of uh, fact checkers as well about that area. Well, let me reveal one other little interesting background note to to my sort of inquiry, and that is that two months before This American Life aired that first show with Mike Daisy in January of 2012. I had contacted Mike Daisy himself to be on this show. It was right after Steve Jobs had died, and I was looking for someone who might offer interesting thoughts about Steve Jobs's career. And Daisy's one-man show was not just about his trip to the Foxconn plant in China, but it was also about his problematic relationship with Apple products and the kind of uh, myth of Steve Jobs. He did not respond to my email, so he was never on my show, so I was never in the position of having to retract anything. But... <laughs> But I can guarantee you that if I had interviewed him, I would not have fact-checked him very thoroughly because I don't have the apparatus to do that. I depend on on trust. I do my best to find a person who I think has some authority in a subject, and then I trust them, which uh, is maybe a bit troubling, but it's, it's the truth of how interview shows typically work. It's, it's the truth of how probably most journalists work. I mean, the the concept of fact-checking, which first really emerges um, in the early 20th century, first at Time magazine and then at the New Yorker magazine, is the actual discipline of fact-checking really has only ever existed at magazines and primarily at large American magazines. Uh, And this is the idea that you have somebody whose job is to pick apart any piece of reporting, every quote, every fact, every stat, even the images, um, to make sure that everything being claimed and written and quoted is actually true. And it takes, obviously, a a certain amount of resources to do that and training to do that, and newspapers don't do it. Um, You know, vast majority of radio programs and TV programs don't do it. So I, I think, you know, audiences are sometimes surprised by that because the term has become such a part of everyday discussion that they assume everybody does fact checking. But fact checking itself refers to a very specific kind of discipline. Now, verification is something, of course, all journalists should be doing. But no, I mean, most journalists do not unpack and check every single thing they're told. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's sometimes a clash between audience expectation and what's actually being done um, by journalists in newsrooms. Well, in, in the retraction show, Ira Glass, who seemed um, deeply aggrieved by the whole episode, I sense that he he felt it might damage his own credibility, went to great lengths to say that normally This American Life does a really good job and that they fell down this one time, particularly because they did not pursue the one person who could confirm or deny what Mike Daisy had claimed, and that is his translator in China. Mike Daisy had said she was no longer available, had lost her cell phone number or didn't have it anymore, and, you know, she was someone they'd never find, and they gave up on it. And meanwhile... An enterprising uh, reporter from the um, radio show Marketplace did pursue this translator. Uh, the reporter's name is Rob Schmitz, by the way. Uh, and he found her, and she proceeded to discredit a great deal of what 
Mike Daisy claimed had happened on his trip. However, Rob Schmitz did take her word for it. And is that the usual fact-checking procedure, that you go one step beyond your source, find someone else who can corroborate, and stop there? Or do you keep pursuing some notion of, of verification to the next step and the next step and the next step? Uh, so the sort of foundational element for fact-checking is you try to get a, a, as much of a primary source as you can. So somebody who, you know, experienced it, saw it with their own eyes, somebody who is a demonstrated expert who has specific knowledge about something, going back to original documents, um, if, it's, you know, if it's possible. So in, in this respect, I think one of the things that's really kind of notable about all this is the marketplace reporter all he had to do to find Daisy's translator was to Google her name. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that that's really um, a, a, a significant condemna- condemnation of what This American Life did or didn't do in terms of its fact-checking process. You know, Mike Daisy throws up a roadblock. Oh, um, my translator, you know, her cell phone doesn't work anymore. And they just sort of say, oh, well, that's too bad. And I think what they did do a good job of is actually trying to look at the claims that Mike Daisy was making about Apple and see if there was corroboration in other kinds of reporting out there for it. And so what they found was that his claims of having seen an underage worker, while there were reports that there had been underage workers at some of these factories, um, his report that, you know, um, about chemicals and other things, this had been documented in other places. So he had used enough of sort of verifying information that was out there that was in good sources um, for the This American Life people that when it came to actually checking the things he was claiming, these were things that, you know, had been documented elsewhere. But the key thing was, had Mike Daisy seen them and experienced them? And the only way to know that is, is one, from him, and two, from the translator who accompanied him, and then from three, to triangulate what those two people tell you with what has been documented elsewhere. And for me, in this triangle, you know, two of those parts were, or rather, rather than a triangle, perhaps it's a stool, two of those <laughs> legs on the stool were, were standing. And the third one, the translator, was a critical one, which they didn't make the effort to find, and she knocked the whole thing over. Uh, and so I think that, you know, you do have to look at her in a very serious way because the best that you can get are those outside sources are Mike Daisy and the translator. And if you don't have all three, it's really impossible to, to say you have confidence in that particular story. Yes, but I'm, I'm noting that if they had tracked down the translator and if she had said, oh, yeah, that was the way it was, that would not have necessarily been enough to, to be sure 100% that it really happened. And and how can you ever really be sure? And I'm not trying to get all philosophical here and hopelessly postmodern, but it strikes me that even in the case of the extra step taken by uh, Rob Schmitz, in the end, you depend on the credibility of the source. Now, the translator sounded quite credible. She didn't seem to have a dog in the fight at all and had no reason to deny what Mike Daisy had claimed. And so she comes off as more believable. And, of course, he did more or less admit that he fudged. So I think we can all safely conclude that she was telling the truth and he wasn't initially. But it does raise a larger point that any fact-checking process stops somewhere, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not a foolproof process. Um, it's pretty much the most exhaustive one that exists today in the world of journalism, but it's absolutely not 100%. Uh, and you know, as, as much as there is good work done by fact-checkers, they know that 
they're going to miss something here or there, or, you know, they're going to check a bunch of sources, and maybe the one that they don't check is the one that, you know, takes the whole thing and flips it upside down. So there is an element of trust, as you said. You have to trust that the people you're talking to are not willfully lying. And then you trust, but you verify. So you take what they've told you, and you go and you try to um, compare it to as many valuable and trustworthy sources as possible. But ultimately, in the end, what it comes down to a lot of times when there's something that's disputed or unsure, you know, if, if some, somebody says something happened and there isn't, you know, indisputable video of it, you are, in the end, making a judgment call. And fact-checking helps equip you with the best possible material to make a good judgment call. But when the fact-checking fails, your judgment fails. And, and as you get into murkier issues or highly contested issues, like, say, politics, you can sometimes enter, you know, Rashomon territory, where it's an endless sequence of people giving alternate versions all the way down. What's a journalist to do in that case? I think what a journalist does is acknowledge the ambiguity. And this is one of the places where we really fall down, is that we want to portray things in very much in black and white, and we want to be able to declare, here's what happened. But often, you know, oftentimes things don't fit into that kind of a box. They aren't that stark. They aren't that simple. And so when you encounter ambiguity and when you encounter things that you're not sure of and things that are conflicting, it is absolutely a part of your duty and your responsibility to communicate that and make that part of your story. Then, you know, one of the worst mistakes that journalists make is to just sort of think that they have to actually be declarative about something. I think most of us understand that while some things may be clear, a lot of stuff in this world is not. Uh, and there should be no hesitation to make that clear to people. And I, I think that there's something very human and, and actually very relatable about that, rather than stories that just seem so perfect and, and well put together and where everything fits and that kind of thing. That's probably a little bit less real than, um, you know, than, than the things that have some unsure and unknown parts. Well, well Craig... Does a story, let's say, and, and by the way, I want to question that use of the word story, too, <laughs> but a news story that ends up saying, well, he said this, uh, she said that, and then another guy said this, and yet another person said that, and maybe we'll never know. Does that kind of story win a Pulitzer? It's a good question. I, off the top of my head, I'm not sure if the answer is, is yes or no. <laughs> there may be evidence either way. Uh, but I think one of the one of the things, and it's kind of an interesting dynamic, as more and more information and more and more of the world comes online and is accessible, you would think that we would actually have less ambiguity. You would think that we have, you know, the ability to really call things clearly. And I think what's happening is, in, to a certain extent, is is the opposite. The abundance of information and more sources and more voices, I think, is actually making it more clear that things are not always a simple, clear narrative. I mean, I think Pulitzer committees tend to love to see, especially for the big, prestigious, you know, um, public, uh, you, know, the, you know, the big prize for, for public service journalism, they like to see a story that nailed something and then had an impact. And, you know, that's nice, but it's not always what happens. Sometimes you write a story and you think it's one way and then you discover it's something else. And I think the world um, becoming more connected and more information available at your fingertips is actually reinforcing that more than providing clarity. And, and this kind of ambiguity is something we have to learn to live with and deal with better as journalists. You know, of course, you and I both use the word story, and that is the term for what 
print journalists and radio journalists and TV journalists produce a story. Now, a story is not just a neutral reporting or recitation of data or facts. It is a shaped thing. It is a thing that follows a narrative path and leads, hopefully, to some kind of satisfactory ending. And a lot of what you're trained to do in journalism is not just collect the facts and not just to list them all like you were some census taker, you know, but to shape them, right? And to shape them into something compelling and readable and catchy. You learn how to write a good lead that makes the reader want to read on, and you learn how to get good anecdotes and good quotes and all these dramatic elements. And when I said, you know, a a, a nice list of the facts as we know them doesn't win Pulitzers, we do know what does win Pulitzers, you know? It's stories like, say, Janet Cook's very famous Pulitzer-winning Mm-hmm. Uh, series about, was it an eight-year-old heroin addict back in like the 1980s? Uh, she was writing for the Washington Post. And of course, it turned out to be not true. But boy, was it a good story. Does, mm-hmm. d- does journalism have an inner tension between this very strong incentive to produce good yarns and, on the other hand, to be really accurate? I mean, I think it probably started with the so-called new journalism in, in the 1960s where there was the idea of, of taking some of the techniques from fiction to really create a narrative that not just had the facts, uh, you know, a basic kind of recitation of the facts, but that actually told a story and crafted a narrative that was compelling and that um, created emotion and tension and all of these wonderful devices that you, that you find in fiction. And I think that, yes, there, there often can be a tension between uh, making it compelling and, t- and telling that story but also making sure that you're faithful to the facts. And, and, I mean, we continue to see people who, in the search of that impactful story, in the search of that narrative that maybe wins them prizes and captures the front page for them, uh, they give short shrift to the facts that are there. My, my view on it is that when you nail down the facts and when you have that precision and when you've gathered all the relevant material, what you've actually collected is the most powerful material you can possibly have to then craft that kind of narrative. Um, so I, I think that the tension, I would, I would hope that people see it as sort of a false tension, that you can't really tell that wonderful story unless you get the facts and have those and then can present that with authority. Uh, but, but the construct of the story itself, to a certain extent, is, is kind of under attack, or at the very least, it's shifting. Um, you know, now we can, can give out bite-sized pieces of information via Twitter, we can tell stories in very different ways um, than just traditional text um, and, you know, the inverted pyramid structure that newspapers have used since, you know, the Civil War. So I think we're seeing the fracturing of the traditional story, but the thing that stays the same in the new models and methods and mediums um, are the facts and that they are the building blocks that you then craft something that is a compelling narrative. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet the uh, when we look at the famous cases of journalistic fraud that most people are familiar with, you know, Stephen Glass and Jason Blair and the aforementioned Janet Cook, uh, and then some of the scandals in memoir writing like James Fry and, uh, you know, Mike Daisy's performance, it, it seems is that the common denominator is all of them gave in to the temptation to, to be better storytellers than the facts seem to support. One of the things that that I keep thinking of, whether it's Mike Daisy or, or other folks, is that you know they they have their story that they wanted to tell, and and to a certain extent, you look at James Fryer, Mike Daisy, 
you know, they sort of ignored the, the facts because they felt they had a better story without sticking to the facts themselves. <laughs> yes. But one of the interesting things about it to me is that they realized that the story itself is only more powerful, and it's better if they present it as having been, this happened to me, and this is what I saw. And so it's interesting because, on the one hand, they think that the story is more compelling if they make up facts and, you know, to make it more attractive to people. But at the same time, they still want to wrap it in the, you know, in the cloak of of nonfiction and journalistic accuracy because they know that that's equally as compelling. So really, I think they're equal elements in terms of making it appealing. And, you know, the problem comes when when people sort of sacrifice one for the other. Um, I think that they're both the core components to having a really compelling story. Fiction is, is wonderful, but there's, there's almost an added compelling nature when somebody says, this is the story and it's true. You know, that's the sort of extra ta-da element to it that I, I think is what's actually enticing them, perhaps even more than the sort of narrative idea. Uh, yeah, and I think some writers have pointed out also that there are some stories that um, aren't really you know, good enough to stand as fiction. That that, that is, if they were presented as fiction, if Mike Daisy had said, I'm going to tell you a fictional story about going to China and meeting some workers who are having a hard time, you'd say, well, gee, that's that's a little boring. You had any, you could do anything you wanted. It's fiction. It could have some fantastic plot twists and things. And all you did was go there, meet a, a few factory workers and come home. Uh, it wouldn't have stood as fiction. Uh, on the other hand, um, the facts weren't dramatic enough, at least he felt they weren't, to stand. And so you get you find this middle ground, which is faction, you know? <laughs> right. And, and also, I mean, the other part for Daisy is that, you know, this, this was a theatrical show. This was uh, done in, in small theaters, and people going to the theater are predisposed to assume that what they're seeing necessarily isn't true. And so I I would think personally that he had an opportunity to sort of find some kind of disclosure that said, you know, based on true events or, you know, there includes some composite characters or things like that. And to just make it clear that, you know, this is a performance. But I think he got greedy and I think he wanted, that wasn't good enough. He wanted to sort of take on the tone of, you know, the reporter to sort of be Upton St. Clair on stage and presenting this to people and saying that. Um, and I think there is a place, particularly in theater and in film and in fiction, to sort of mix truth and, and you know, facts from elsewhere and other things. But he just didn't do it. Um, and I think that, that that was one of the really big failures for him. He still could have done the show. I think it still could have been affecting for people, even if he hadn't have sort of put this rigid claim of it being nonfiction. And, and, you know, I found a program for a performance in Washington of Daisy's monologue that actually said on it that this is a work of nonfiction. Like, he went so far as to declare that on the program. Well, yeah, and, and uh, I saw that in your, your blog. You posted uh, um, an uh, image of that description. Um, and, and again, it's, it's like when you have a story that's not wild enough to be fiction, uh, but maybe not dramatic enough uh, purely on the basis of facts, then there is this temptation to call it true, but to juice it up. And mm-hmm. and I think you've pointed that out in your blog uh, a number of times, that what you're trying to do is have it both ways, in a way. Um, there was another case you've written about, which I think is a, a an incredibly funny one, uh, and it does get us back into Rashomon land, in a way, 
Uh, and that is the, the recent book, The Lifespan of a Fact, by, uh, is it pronounced John Degata? Do you know? Yes, I think that I think that's correct, but I haven't checked it myself. So okay. <laughs> we, we can go with that, knowing that we may be wrong. <laughs> Believe me, my listeners are used to those kinds of mistakes. Um, <laughs> the SAS John Degata and the uh, former fact checker uh, Jim Fingal, and again, I don't know how he pronounces his name, but this is a book that supposedly, at least, it was described as uh, essentially uh, recounting an actual exchange that these two guys had when Degata was writing a uh, a story for the Believer magazine about an actual suicide that had occurred in Las Vegas. And he was being fact-checked by then-intern Jim Fingal. And uh, Degata uh, was claiming that he had the right to change uh, and alter facts for the sake of the story, and Fingal was pushing back, saying, uh, we should really stick to the facts. And so you have this book that recounts supposedly a seven-year exchange between these two guys, in which the Degata comes off as kind of a d- and Fingal comes off as kind of an earnest, young uh, believer in truth. And, and the book is meant to dramatize, you know, some of the same issues you and I have been talking about in this interview. Well, it turns out the book is not exactly what it seemed, as you can explain. That's right. I, I mean, this book, in the reviews that I had seen in The New Yorker, in Salon, um, in Slate, other reputable publications. This book was starting to get widely reviewed, and I was taking note of it, of course, because it's right in, in my wheelhouse of things that I'm interested in. Uh, and so all the reviews that I read talked about this book being based on this seven-year exchange between author and fact-checker. And I looked at the marketing materials for the book, and it said, you know, a seven-year, uh, this seven-year debate um, that, the, that the book has grown out of. And what I discovered in a story where actually the two authors were interviewed, is that they said, no, 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 this is, this is not actual correspondence between us. We decided to sort of embody characters based on ourselves and write a book in those voices to delve into these issues. So the book is not factual. It's been sold as factual. It's been reviewed as factual. Uh, and it's just led to uh, a whole wide range of misinformation being let, given to book reviewers and then, of course, onto the public. And, I mean, it's, it's been a real frustration for me because I've, I've written about it and sort of helped to make it clear that, no, 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 it's not true. And to their credit, I'll say this. The two authors have been, you know, scrupulous in all of the interviews that they have done. They have made that clear when asked. But if you look at the marketing materials for the book, if you look at the book jacket copy, if you look at all these reviews, it's clear that people aren't getting the message. And so there's kind of this weird tension where the authors are saying one thing, but the book itself is actually being sold in a different way. And for me, I, I'm really the big, biggest party that I'm sort of disappointed and upset at is the publisher, because I think that they're, again, using the cloak of journalistic accuracy, using the cloak of nonfiction to sell something that's actually fiction. Um. It, it, it's fiction that's related to a factual episode. Uh, there was an exchange. It didn't last seven years. It lasted roughly a year, people are saying, um, leading up to the publication of, of this article. Uh, it did involve some of the debates. The actual exchange did involve some of the debates that they put in the book, but it was not this book-length thing with these two rather extreme characters. Uh, I think uh, Degata probably wasn't nearly as much of a jerk as he comes off in the book, you know, and maybe Fingal wasn't quite the way he seems in the book either. I mean, they've just dramatized it. Pretty fascinating that a book about truth uh, is marketed in a somewhat untrue way. 
I mean, I, I think that there's sort of a wink and a nudge about that to a certain extent, saying, yes, it's a book debating truth and accuracy, and the book itself is sort of debatable of how much is true and how much is accurate. But the problem that I have with that is I don't think you should be giving misinformation to consumers or book reviewers, and I don't think that you should be portraying your work in a way that it isn't that will actually make it more enticing for people. Um, so I, I worry about people who've bought the book um, and then maybe come across my article or other ones, and they realize, oh, it, this isn't what I thought it was. And I actually do know of, of at least one person um, who complained to Amazon and got, their, got a refund. They sent the book back um, over this. And, and I think that this is the sort of the essential connection between Daisy and this book, The Lifespan of a Fact, is that they are using nonfiction and sort of truth as sales techniques. Um, they know that it makes it more appealing, so they're using that to get their work out there more. And I think it's the same offense, really. Craig, now, now you are obviously a standard bearer for a, a tradition, you know, that really believes in solid facts, believes in fact-checking, and believes in distinguishing between surmises and confirmed information that believes in truth and labeling and all that. There is another faction out there that says... We are in an era where you can never really know what's real, and the, the higher truths are not always reflected in the mere data. They're reflected in the story itself, t well told. Do you get many accusations that you are a buzzkill, uh, a school marm, etc.? Um, I have to say that I, if, if those accusations are being made, they're not being made to my face. Um, uh, but, but I will say this, that sometimes I think I have an internal alarm for that, because the truth is, you know, you sort of talked about me in terms of a standard bearer and a traditionalist, and I actually, I don't consider myself a traditionalist. I'm very interested in um, in crowdsourced verification, you know, how you can use uh, followers and friends in social media to help you confirm information. I absolutely realize that there are times when you simply don't know what the truth is, and what I support is hedging and making it clear, you know, the ambiguity and embracing that. Uh, so... So hopefully because um, I really am interested in the new tools and technologies for verification and the new ways of actually, you know, showing the things you don't know, hopefully that means that I'm not sort of seen as this school marm because I think if that does happen, then journalists and other people in these areas will just stop listening to me because really nobody, nobody wants to be told what to do and nobody wants to be told you're doing it wrong. And, and that's one tension that I always sort of have with myself that I want to be seen as being productive and not just sort of going around to people wagging my finger saying, ah, you got that wrong, because the truth is we're all going to make mistakes. I've had many corrections to my work. I will continue to have them, uh, and that's not going to change. What matters is what do you do to prevent them, what do you do to learn from them, and how do you stop them from happening again? Well, Craig, I just want to say in parting uh, thanks and, uh, and also to attest that I have done absolutely nothing to confirm that you are, in fact, Craig Silverman, that your uh, bona fides are bona fide. I'm just going to trust you on this. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Craig. Thank you. Craig Silverman. His blog is called Regret the Error. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Next up, Jim Fingal. He's the co-author with John Degata of the book mentioned just a moment ago in my interview with Craig Silverman, The Lifespan of a Fact. It's about a fact-checking job of epic proportions. So, Jim, back in, what was it, 2005, 
you were an intern at the Believer magazine, the literary magazine known as the Believer? Yes, that's correct. And, and you were a fact checker? Yeah, well, I, as part of my intern duties, uh, I did fact checking projects for articles or essays that were submitted to the magazine. Well, you seem to have taken the task uh, pretty seriously, judging from the work you did on the essay submitted by John Tagata. Um, and what was the name of the essay as it was uh, I believe it, originally what titled? There? What Happened There? About a, a suicide of a teenager in Las Vegas in, in 2003? Yeah. I mean, the, the task of fact-checking itself sort of demands uh, a great attention to detail and, and the, the density of detail in the essay and the density of inaccuracies and uh, modifications is what sort of turned uh, that that project into a bit of a beast. <laughs> well, you're saying um, that maybe a normal job might last a few weeks and then uh, a few corrections made perhaps and, and then publication, but in this case it stretched to how long? The bulk of it happened over the first uh, about six months and then it, it sort of spread out to the course of a year as there were further revisions and, and corrections to the revisions. So um, this this year involved you checking facts and then corresponding with John Degata about discrepancies that you'd found? Yeah. Now, you guys have, have gone a step further. Uh, after a year of fact-checking, you then came back to this episode in the form of a book, which is a kind of recreated version of this exchange you had with John Degata. And uh, it, it isn't completely itself factual, this dialogue that's published in the book, right? Right. So when uh, I think at the end of the process, uh, I think we came out of the fact-checking with uh, a 100-page document breaking down every sentence in the essay and disputing and verifying things. Uh, and I think... John was the the one that you know first looked at that, and I think in his words he was angry and then embarrassed, uh, but then you know thought there was something interesting about it, and that sort of obs- obsessiveness of the the process of fact checking. Uh, I think he found some sort of resonance in that with the obsessiveness that that he has in in researching uh, his pieces, though it takes a very different uh, form. From there, uh, it became clear to us as we were, we were thinking about this and thinking how to turn it into a book that uh, perhaps a sober dialogue between two relatively mild-mannered dudes about the topic of veracity and nonfiction might not hold the attention of that much of a wider audience beyond ourselves. So in the book, we get a very protracted back and forth between a, a super scrupulous fact-checker um, some might even say anal about getting things exactly right, and kind of a headstrong writer who defends a certain amount of creativity and uh, flexibility, shall we say, in the interest of, of storytelling and art. Uh, yeah, and, and in some ways <laughs> a, a defense of a particular uh, literary form, uh, the the idea that the essay is something separate from journalism and the uh, the labeling of sort of all nonfiction non poetry works as nonfiction and holding it accountable to the journalistic integrity is I think something that that John uh, strongly 
disagrees with and, and, and disregards to to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I have the sense that he's writing this essay about a suicide in Las Vegas sort of in the tradition of Osei Joan Didion's essays, her famous essays from, I think, the 1970s and 80s, where she would, you know, address some event, uh, some actual event, or some something that was covered in the news, but but step back into a far more uh, philosophical, poetic, interpretive stance, you know, along the way. Uh, so it ceased to be pure journalism. But it was rooted in, in events that actually happened. And the uh, bone of contention between you, the fact-checker, and John Degata, the writer, was that those statements of actual fact, of what actually happened, were in some cases fudged. Yeah, and that's the, I mean, the question there is, what does rooted in mean? Yeah, uh, yeah. And also, from the fact-checker's perspective, it sort of doesn't really matter what the, the author's intentions are or whether or not they want to uh, wax poetic or, or philosophical. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if the piece is actually labeled as fiction. The task to to fact-check it is is the same. What differs is is what is done with that information. Right, right. Well, the tricky thing about... Um this kind of essay, is that the writer should be allowed to draw whatever general, large-scale conclusions they might want to about the state of our society or the temper of the times from, from some event, but shouldn't they at least state the facts of the event correctly? Someone did commit suicide, an actual person with a real name, uh, under actual circumstances, and some, to the extent that those circumstances are verifiable, shouldn't the essay stick to them? Well, I guess it, it depends on what the the author is is trying to achieve. A lot of people would say that an argument that that marshals facts that that themselves are on shaky ground discredits the the argument uh, to a large degree. But for a writer who is trying to get at emotional truths or uh, a mood, it's a little bit of a fuzzier question. They're not not making a broad conclusion that says this follows from this follows from this. But from a, a reader's perspective, it's a weird and uncertain terrain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what you guys have done, again, with this actual exchange uh, between you, the fact-checker, and John Degata, the author, is to create two characters for the sake of this book um, that are somewhat exaggerated versions of what actually happened. Maybe you weren't quite as stubborn as you're depicted, and maybe he wasn't quite as impatient and downright rude as he's depicted. For instance, his character, I'm going to call it his character, says to you at one point, quote-unquote, I'm seeking truth here, but not necessarily accuracy. It's called art, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he never actually said that to me, though. I think he really insisted that it be in there. So I think that, you know, in his heart of hearts, he... He thought I was being a dickhead through the press. Because <laughs> you were calling him on everything from, you know, the big facts, right? Like the actual sort of crime report level details of the suicide, but atmospherics, like the color of buildings or the color of the sky and things like that, right? Yeah, the, those bricks look brown to me. <laughs> you were a nightmare of a fact checker. Every author's nightmare. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think to the extent that the fact checking is, is over the top, those sort of perceptual details of the mountains look black rather than brown or, or the bricks are brown rather than red is where I think the line gets crossed into a little bit of, of absurdity. 
Though, in a lot of ways, the fact-checking that I did was not as thorough as you would expect to be done at maybe a, a newspaper or a place like the New Yorker. You know, I relied a lot on, on Internet sources, or you know, if I had a source, I didn't try to find a primary source or, or corroboration. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Were you trained in fact-checking, or did you just say, well, this is how I'm going to do it? The latter. <laughs> the latter. And, you know, there is a problem with fact-checking, of course, which is when do you stop? I mean, who do you rely on? Uh, let's say you call up someone who was close to the event and, and got them to confirm or deny something. Do you then trust them, or do you go one step further and find someone who can corroborate what they say? And uh, do you end up going down a mine shaft and never coming out again? Uh, right. And that, and that sort of gets to the, you know, starts to get into what you could either call going crazy mode or, you know, the philosophical roots of knowledge mode where... Epistemological. Uh, you know, how, how, do, how do we know what we know? Like, how, how does one become absolutely certain about something? Well, you know, the reason I, I, I called you, Jim, uh, is because... Um, not only had you co-authored this interesting book, Lifespan of a Fact, about this deep question that you and John Degata tossed back and forth, but you also wrote more recently on the, the now infamous uh, retraction episode of the This American Life radio show in which um, Ira Glass uh, sat down with Mike Daisy and sort of uh, called him on the fabrications that had gone into a previous episode of This American Life. Uh, called Mr. Daisy Goes to China. And you were one of the few people I, I saw point out that the confrontation between Mike Daisy and Ira Glass was a kind of ritual. In fact, I think I'd like to play a little clip right now of part of that quote-unquote ritual. We're going to hear Ira Glass confronting Mike Daisy and talk to him about a particular event that he recounted in his stage show and again on This American Life about having gone to China, to Shenzhen, where this giant factory is, the Foxconn factory complex, and having met with a group of workers who had been poisoned by an industrial solvent called N-hexane. And it turns out that Mike Daisy did not meet with those workers. Yep. Uh, there had been some poisoning by N-hexane in some other part of China, but Mike Daisy had never met with those workers, and it hadn't happened at the Foxconn plant, where Mike Daisy claimed it had happened. I mean, with the hexane, we approached you and asked you specifically about that. There's an email that, that Brian sent you about the hexane. He, he wrote, Apple's 2011 report, this is their responsibility report, acknowledges the hexane problem at two plants, one at WinTech and another at a logo supplier, but not at Foxconn. These workers you were talking to in the monologue, were they from Foxconn, do you remember, or from other plants? And and at that point, you could have come back to us and said, oh, no, no, I didn't meet these workers. You know, this is just something that I inserted in the monologue based on things I had read and things I had heard in Hong Kong. Um, but instead, you lied further and you said, you wrote, the workers were from WinTech, not Foxconn. Why not just tell us what really happened at that point? I think I was terrified. Of what? That 
think I was terrified that if I untied these things, that the work that I know is really good and tells a story that does these really great things for making people care, that it would come apart in a way where, where it would ruin everything. So, Jim, um, you had called this a ritual, and, and that was my feeling, too, especially um, when we hear those long pauses, uh, which Ira Glass left in, where Mike Daisy is presumably dumbstruck and gulping, and then finally comes forth with something like a, a confession that he he made up those details because they made for a better story, and he was afraid to, to tell uh, This American Life that they weren't true when they asked him in the course of their own fact-checking before that episode aired. What was your reaction to that? It's pretty uncomfortable listening. <laughs> uh, but it's also familiar in, in the piece I, I write about. I think the most common cultural uh, milestone of this sort that people related to is Oprah's trotting out of, of James Frey and sort of shaming him for having misled her, her readers, but you know maybe more to the point misled her in the presentation of, of his work and there being this, this feeling of, of betrayal and the, the need to take someone to task for, for that betrayal. Yeah, that, uh, I can't remember the year that happened, but it was uh, the memoir uh, that James Fry, it's actually pronounced Fry even though it's spelled like Frey, uh, oh, yeah. the James Fry had published called A Million Little Pieces, massive bestseller, Oprah book club pick, and James Fry definitely had completely made up you know, some very important events in that story. So Oprah, after she learns this, calls in James Fry and does again this ritual on TV where she says, you lied to me, James, and he squirms and apologizes. Ira Glass did something similar, it's true, and he even referenced the James Fry episode. Um, Here's a moment toward the end of his conversation with Mike Daisy where it gets very Oprah-esque. I have such a weird mix of feelings about this because I simultaneously feel terrible for you and also I feel lied to. And also I stuck my neck out for you. You know, like I, I feel like I feel like like I vouched for you with our audience based on your word. I'm sorry. What do you what do you make of the ritual? I think it's sort of complicated. There's a reputation to be defended, a bit of embarrassment on, you know, either Oprah or, or Ira Glass's part that the full degree of fact-checking was, was not done. And also, you know, from an institutional standpoint, uh, I think when This American Life, you know, if they want to, to publish things like this in the future, they want to sort of defend their reputation as, as someone who could be trusted. Mike Daisy, though he apologized there, later continued to defend some of what he does as necessary to capturing the larger truth, the larger truth in his mind being that there really were lousy conditions in this factory, that some of these types of events had happened. No, he didn't necessarily expose them on his trip. They didn't necessarily happen in this factory or to these people. But, you know, the gist was true. And also, uh, in order to get people interested, you have to tell a good story. And that means keeping things simple, personalizing them. It's much more dramatic if you meet with the workers than if you said, oh, I also read a newspaper article about workers some months before being poisoned at a different plant, you know? 
so in a sense, he he was in the same position when he said those things as the John Degata character in the book you and John Degata wrote, the lifespan of a fact. Right. You you have probably thought about some of these issues as much as anybody I'm likely to find because you've had to toss around this idea of say good storytelling and quote unquote larger truths versus niggling questions of accuracy. Where do you come down on it? Well, I mean, I I think where I come down on it is is less on writers must act in this way in all circumstances, but more an emphasis on the importance of of the context as well as the reader's expectations. I mean, I think that you know it's crucially important to you know society and democracy to have this thing that we call journalism that abides by uh, journalistic ethics, but there's also this gray area that I'm not really sure what to do with, which, you know, consists of artwork, particularly the piece that, that John worked on is, is instructive because it's a piece of artwork that, uh, you know, from, from his point of view, depends on this idea that it presents itself as journalism from the start so that it can later on in the piece subvert that and signal that that journalistic mode is, is not sufficient to express the sorts of things that it means to express, and then moving into a more lyric mode. What does it say that in, I think, quite a few circumstances, Mike Daisy's story is one, maybe John Degata's story is another, that in order to get to, quote-unquote, the larger truth or make an impact, create something beautiful— or moving, the facts aren't themselves good enough and do have to be changed. Well, yeah, I mean, people would certainly argue with that. And I think, you know, journalists and, and, and people in the nonfiction camp with the journalistic background would argue that it, it is enough and it's the job of, of the writer to, to work with that. People have argued with the Daisy piece that in making it more accessible and, you know, emotionally impacting, there's a a disservice done in the, the simplification of the, the narrative uh, and turning what is sort of a complex, messy question into one with maybe easy answers and, and a clear bad guy. Right. And I wonder, I mean, you know, there's an argument on behalf of the artist that we must perform these manipulations because there's the greater good of the story itself, of the beautiful thing, of the higher truth that you know, stories deliver. But I'm a, I'm a little bit haunted by the, the thought that maybe that stories serve more than anything else the storyteller. They make the storyteller feel important and get praise. Um, do they really serve the rest of us all that well? Well, I, I think it's never just one thing. Certainly there there is the, the aspect of that. And, and again, I think what people react against when these things come out is not just, oh, I feel so betrayed that I was led to believe that there were guns in front of this factory when there were not guns, but this idea that I sort of look, looked up and held this person in, in, into esteem and, and maybe they didn't deserve that. Um, but it, at the same time, I mean, it, it's, it's a complicated question because, you know, how many more of us know, you know, who Foxconn is or, you know, care after having, you know, listened to either the original piece or even the retraction piece yeah, it's true. Uh, one of the things to just throw out there for people to think about that occurs to me is that there is this process of complicity that we're all involved in 
when we as consumers insist that stories really have to be dramatic, juicy, cool, beautiful. Otherwise, we're not going to read them or watch them or buy them. Uh, so we're not going to read that long six-part series in the New York Times about accounting discrepancies discovered in some federal government agency, which goes into great detail, numerically uh, precise detail about various accounting practices. No one's going to read it unless it has some characters in it, some great uh, emotional hook. Yeah, uh, and, and the question is, so there's a continuum between that and fiction <laughs> and and what, where are we comfortable drawing the line in, in what context? <laughs> but, but, I mean, we're all sort of guilty. I mean, like, I see that six-part story in the New York Times, but guess where I'm looking? There's some <laughs> sex scandal that's just broken out with a celebrity, and that's the thing I'm going to read. The more we participate in that, though, the, the, the more a kind of um, lowering of the bar happens, where we now expect everything to be easy to read, easy to think about, uh, to appeal to the lowest common denominator, you know, to have plenty of sugar and salt and and fat in it, like junk food, and not a lot of substance. And maybe part of the reason for why we are so outraged at these things like the Mike Daisy affair uh, are that we see ourselves in the mirror and the curtain is, is drawn back <laughs> a, l- a little bit, uh, and maybe we realize that <laughs> that what you just described is the case, and we don't like that, so... We, we have a, a strong reaction to, to compensate for it. <laughs> and, and by the way, I should say, by substance, I don't just mean factual detail. I also mean complexity, ambivalence, ambiguity, the kinds of things that most reality has too much of and that stories tend to dispense with in order to go down more easy. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, um, let, me, let me ask you, Jim, your book, we both talked about it as having been a recreation of this fact-checking process that you spent a year engaged in with with, uh, John Degada. And the recreation was presented as having taken place over seven years and involving particular dialogue with a um, a kind of truculent writer and a kind of earnest young fact-checker. Some of that wasn't really exactly as it happened. And and ironically, um, some readers and reviewers felt like they'd been hoodwinked by the packaging of the book that they had taken it on faith that indeed this was, you know, essentially a transcript of your back and forth with John Degada, that it had taken seven years to fact-check this article in The Believer. Um, And they didn't get that these were characters, this was a kind of um, exaggerated version of what happened, and that it only had taken a year. Um, I mean, when you found out that people weren't getting that, did you feel bad about it? Do you feel like you guys should have been more upfront about that? Well, in, in a lot of ways, I, I think I was surprised, particularly by the, you know, the more visible uh, and sometimes, you know, the more acerbic reactions to, to the book, having uh, read it sort of straight as facsimile of, of emails uh, being passed back and forth. You know, maybe because having written the, the book, it seemed to me sort of an unbelievable back and forth between uh, two people and, and, and sort of farcical and, and over the top. And I don't think that there was any intent to mislead people as to to what we were doing or or to try to you know sell the book by by hoodwinking them though one thing that I think I do stand by as as having done and and I think the the, the book is more interesting for having done that is that there is ambiguity in, in in the text and in itself taking the form of of the sort of of text that is discussed in, in, in the book and, you know, in us 
being very upfront about that, you know, to anyone who would ask us, I think that it makes it a more interesting meditation on, on the topic. Mm-hmm. So no long pauses uh, and, and uh, apologies from you, huh? <laughs> no, I, well, I, I think as ambitious as I am for the future of this book, uh, it also seems the stakes are a little bit uh, lower with, <laughs> with our experimental literary essay than Mike Daisy's journalistic piece about Apple. I think that the book, labeled as uh, an essay, as, as literature, sort of lives up to what it claims to be, even if there's some ambiguity and, and confusion about that. Mm-hmm. So you, sometime after the events we've talked about where you did spend a year fact-checking this piece, um, you quit being a fact-checker. You quit being an intern and moved on in your life, and you're now working as a software developer? Yeah. You know, I studied English in college, but was always a bit of a computer geek and have never really made up my mind of what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) Well, thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thanks. Jim Fingal is co-author with John Degata of The Lifespan of a Fact. Before I go today, I want to acknowledge that I noticed uh, during the two interviews we just heard that I seem to be pushing a little bit of my own agenda. That is my own concern with story-mongering in today's media. Or maybe it's, it's not even a new phenomenon. Maybe we humans are just born with a sweet tooth for stories and the marketplace is indulging us stuffing storylines everywhere, the way the food industry is pumping all sorts of products full of corn syrup. In any case, I myself have a craving for answers, and I'm going to keep looking for someone who is as obsessed with these questions as I am. And when I find that person, you'll be the first to know. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And you can always visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. Let's go.